So I want you to think for a moment of some important things maybe that you have owned in your life. Perhaps something you've owned of of historical importance, or maybe simply just a sentimental family heirloom, or maybe you actually have something in your possession collection that really is monetarily valuable. If you know what it is, though, if you know how valuable something is, if you know how important something is, how do you treat it? What if we have something on the other side? What if we have something that's really important, really valuable, really historically significant, but we don't know what it is, and it turns out we're using it all wrong? Or what if we have something important and we have no idea what it is or how valuable it might be? There's a whole TV show about this. It's called uh, Antiques Roadshow. Right? There's a British version and an American version. Uh, and people bring their things, their stuff, into Antiques Roadshow when they come to town because they think that this thing might be old, it might be historical, it might be valuable, but I'm not sure about it. So they bring it in and experts look at the thing and they tell about the history, they tell about the story, and they give it an appraised value. Now, sometimes people bring in their stuff and go, look, it's really old. And they go, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's not valuable. It's not important. But sometimes people come in and like, I think this is kind of important. I think this is kind of old. And the best stories are when the owners don't realize that they have something that is truly rare, truly precious, truly extremely valuable, and really should belong in a museum. And then they're shocked to learn that this item is one of only a few in the world and that it is extremely valuable. I learned that uh, Antiques Roadshow actually has uh, police escorts available for these people who realize I have a half a million dollar or a million dollar thing and they'll, we can walk you back to your car or even if it's really valuable, we'll give you a police escort back to your home because you're holding this extremely rare, valuable thing. Uh, the picture you see on the screen there is of a man named Ted Kurtz who brought in this old blanket. He knew it was old. He knew it, was, it had some historical values. He remembers as a child his, his grandmother wrapping him up on, on cold nights. Well, turns out this blanket is uh, a Navajo ute. And I'm probably saying that wrong. I apologize. But it is an extremely rare, very finely woven wool blanket that was only given to select Navajo leaders. It's extremely fine craftsmanship. And he thought it might be worth a thousand dollars, a couple thousand dollars. Turns out it's worth about a half a million dollars. And he's like, my grandmother used to wrap me up when I was a little boy in this blanket. Now it's in a museum. It's, they've they've uh, found a home for it. Y'all, I think it could be said for many believers, myself included, that we think of our Bible, of God's Word, in the same way. We know it's important, sure. But we really don't appreciate how important how valuable, how critical this word is to our lives. Now, having said that, some of you I can see are starting to get uncomfortable, and you're thinking, oh boy, it's one of those sermons where he's going to make me feel bad. I don't do guilt sermons, all right? Guilt works for a very short time, and then you, then you get over it, right? Guilt sermons don't work. Um, and I'm not going to bring out the, the Charles Spurgeon quote that there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. I'm not going to do that. Oh. Sorry. What I want to do instead is as we are now going, as we're going through this series on the book of Hebrews, how Jesus is better, so don't give up. 
as we come to our text here in Hebrews chapter 4, as we finish out chapter 4 this morning, what I want us to dig in and is to see what does the Bible have to say about itself? What does the Word say about the Word? And in doing so, I don't want to give you a guilt trip, but what I want to do instead is I want us to see together how beautiful, how wonderful, how truly awesome God's Word is. Y'all here at Church of the Redeemer, we preach from God's Word every Sunday. And we seek to center our worship and our work upon the Word of God in everything that we do. But that being said, it brings up a very important question. What exactly is this book? And perhaps most importantly, what does this book have to say about itself? Y'all, perhaps the reason that we are disinterested in the Bible or not as engaged with the Bible as we ought to be is because we don't fully comprehend what the Bible claims to be. Perhaps we need that Antiques Roadshow appraiser to come in and to tell us how valuable and how important this word is. But the only problem with that is the only one qualified to do so, the only appraiser who's truly the expert who can give us that opinion, is this word itself. The only true authority on the Bible is the Bible. Now, some of y'all may be thinking, wait a minute, I took a philosophy class back in college. This sounds like circular reasoning. The Bible is important because the Bible says it's important. The Bible is the word of God because it says it is the word of God. Right? Well, I'm going to submit it's not circular reasoning. Because everyone, regardless of your worldview, regardless of your philosophical system, everyone starts somewhere. Everyone has a ground zero that we build our entire worldview, system of thought, life upon. So it's either going to be the Bible, it's going to be God's word, or it's going to be your own intellect, your own opinions, or it's going to be someone else's opinions that you've said they are the authority, they're, they're, the, they're the authors. But there's always an authoritative base. You have to start somewhere. Everyone has a foundational authority that everything else in their life is built upon. Les Newsom, he's a pastor in Oxford, Mississippi, said it this way. As we dig into and look at the word of God, as we see what does God's word have to say, he says, the truth is this. If you are committed to the status quo in your life, then by all means, don't dive into the transforming power that is scripture. If you're like, you know, my life is going pretty well. Everything's working like it should. Then maybe you can say, I don't need this. But I would submit that no one really can say that, especially on their own. What we see this morning, what I want us to drive out of this text is that the word of God is living, active, sharp, and personal. This gives us a true and eternal confidence for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. There's three points. I want us to dive through three points this morning as we get through the text. And I'll give you a fair warning. They are not equal in length. The first point is much longer. So don't, if, if we get to the end of point one, you're like, okay, we got a long way to go. Don't worry. Points two and three are much shorter. 
the living and active word, the empathy of our high priest, and the confidence of the believer as we drive through and work through this text this morning. First off, we see the living and active word. I'm looking at verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The first thing that we must know about the word of God, the first thing we must know about the Bible is that it is no ordinary book. Every other book in existence, even the very best of books, come from the mind of an individual or a group of people, written down, and that's it. There, of course, can be beauty and truth in, those, in such books that last well beyond the author, that transcend culture and time and language to a point, that inspire to a point, But in the end, they're all limited. In the end, either the author is dead or the author is on the other side of the world. They're not there with you. But Hebrews here is saying something very different about the Bible. We see that the Bible is living and active. Now, why does he use that kind of language? I want to give you a few uh, texts from other places in Scripture that speak to this same idea. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, looking at 14 through 17. Uh, this is Paul writing to young Timothy about how to continue in ministry. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. A little bit later, Peter writes in in 2 Peter, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Both of these texts are sort of our, two of our uh, most foundational texts in understanding what the Word of God is, where it comes from, and how we understand what it is doing now. Luke, actually, in his gospel accounts, begins by explaining what he's doing with this writing of the gospel. Luke says this in Luke 1.1, 1, 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Thus has those, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke outlines the, as the, where the gospels come from. That we go from the actual events and the eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus Christ to the oral tradition, people talking about the events, to these things being written down. And Luke says, I endeavored to be, uh, put together this orderly account. I went and talked to all of the eyewitnesses, and I put together this account of the work, person and work of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of Luke's gospel, 
Jesus himself says this, on the road to Emmaus, as he is walking along with two of the disciples uh, after the resurrection, but these guys hadn't seen the risen Jesus yet, Jesus hid who he was from them for a moment or for a time as he was walking along, and it says this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus takes all the Old Testament and points it to himself and says, it's all about me, and let me explain to you why. Y'all, what we see here through all of these texts and everything that the Scripture has to say about itself, what we see here is that Scripture is not so much man's witness about God, but it is God's witness of himself given to man as witnesses against man's sin and God's bringing of salvation to his people. So as we consider the scripture, we need to hold that the Bible is both God's word. It's inspired, God breathed, but it's also human work. It is written in time and in history by real people, written as Peter says, of holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is very much God's words in man's mouth. God's words on man's pen. Y'all, we didn't get the scriptures just dropped out of the sky. Other religions, you know, claim that their holy book was found buried in the backyard. Or that God only spoke to this one individual when he was off by himself. But what we see in the scriptures, what we see in the Bible is a collection that was over 1,500 years in the making, written by some 40 men in three languages on three continents, yet compiled together creates one cohesive, coherent narrative. God's story of creation, redemption, and restoration. A proper understanding of this idea of inspiration, that these, these are God's words breathed out by God, is the bringing together the, the, the primacy of God's words, but also acknowledging this human uh, instrument, this human activity. We see God is sovereign over his word, not just the scriptures that we read, but in how these scriptures were delivered to us. God was sovereign over every bit of it. Sovereign in the raising up of men to be able to be delivered the word. The end product now is entirely a product of the Holy Spirit. There is the truth of human influence and impact. We have, again, some 40 different authors. When Moses wrote, Moses wrote like Moses. When David wrote, when he's writing the Psalms, he's writing like David. When Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are writing, they write in their own style, with their own voice, with their own vocabulary. When Paul writes, he writes like Paul. And we even see, you know, over when, when we have same writing from, diff- from, from the same person over time, we see even how they're able to grow and develop as a writer, as we do with Peter, for example, or with Isaiah. What we see is that... Uh, uh, People did not become um, ancient word processors and just kind of go into a trance and just start writing stuff down and then look at it and go, oh, well, I I wrote something. Okay. No, they were writing. They were active, engaged in how they were writing. 
God didn't take over their minds and say, okay, you stand aside. I'm going to use you as a typewriter for a minute. But they wrote actively. There's a fancy theological term from this. If you want to impress somebody, you can, you can tell them this. It is plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary verbal inspiration. It's, that, it's the full inspiration of the totality of Scripture. Every word in the Bible is inspired, but God used human agents over time and place and history to accomplish that. So as we think about and talk about this word that is fully inspired, there's this one image that we see in our text this morning and we see other places in Scripture too. The image that Scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword. This image of a sword for God's word is used several times again in scripture. We see it uh, in a couple places here. We see it as part of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 3. I mean, sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 through 17. Uh, It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And then this last part of it, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then later on in scripture, in Revelation, we get this imagery from Revelation chapter 1, this picture of Jesus himself. Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Beautiful picture. Let me take you behind the scenes a little bit in my own process. Sermon preparation behind the scenes, just for a moment here, Okay. This is where my study of this got interesting over the past couple of weeks. At first, when I got, uh, when you know, Adam is the one who, who comes up with our sermon series and he outline, and he lays out the text and says, and gives us assignments and all, who's preaching what. And I saw my text, I saw it's Hebrews 4, 12 through 16. And if you look in your Bibles, you'll notice, uh, at least my Bible said, well, there's a heading right in the middle of that. One of those subtext headings, subtitles, Jesus, the great high priest. And I was like, do I have two sermons? Am I going to try to mash together like two mini sermons? I got one sermon on 12 through 13 and one sermon on 14 through 16. If so, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. I'll find a connection or something. But the more I dug in, the more I studied, I was like, I don't think that's what's going on. And I think actually that heading is misleading. And just so you all know, um, chapters and verses, very helpful, very useful, not inspired scripture. You can take them out and the Bible is still just as much the Bible. They're useful and they're helpful. Uh, they're good in so many ways, but they're not inspired scripture, right? These, these subtitles, these, these, he- these headings and texts that we see here are not inspired scripture. They are put in by the translators to try and help us in trying to outline and flow through as we read scripture. So sometimes they can get in the way. Remember though, yeah. So as I'm thinking about this, I'm going, okay. Talking about Swords. And then we're talking about a Jesus the high priest. And I was reading commentaries and I was reading through. And I came to the thought, like, I don't know much about swords. I don't know much about swords. And I would dare say very few people, if any, in here really know much about swords. Right? Not like they would have 2,000 years ago. 
I dare say, and if you, if, if you can correct me on this, please, I want to talk to you. I dare say no one in here has ever been in a sword fight. And I'm not talking about like Olympic fencing. I'm talking about a real sword fight for your life, right? Many of you have maybe been in, in the military. You've been in war. You probably were not in a sword fight, right? So any knowledge of swords we have is either like collectible, like I know all the swords of Middle Earth, or something like that, or I know the, the swords of history uh, throughout different cultures. I know like the Scottish Claymore, the really big, you know, William Wallace sword, the Japanese Katana, or the Roman uh, Gladius, this short two-edged sword of the Roman Empire, the Roman Legion. Now, most commentaries that I read on both Hebrews 4.12 and on Ephesians 6, the armor of God, they go to this image, the Roman Gladius the double-bladed short sword used by the Roman legion, and for, for good reason. It was common during the day when both of these texts were written. They're highly effective in close quarters combat, useful in the tight Roman formations that the legions would use. They can penetrate through most armor that they would come against. So this makes some sense. You can see why, okay, if you read the, the, the talking about the, the the sharper than any two-edged sword, the sword of the spirit there in Ephesians 6, this, is the, this makes sense, right? This is what Michael Kruger does in his great commentary on Hebrews, Hebrews for You, that is available out on our resource station. Highly recommend it. But, this is again, back, we're still behind the scenes, right? But, is this the image that we should be using in our minds right now? In preaching to or in writing to this original audience of Jewish believers. Remember, Hebrews was written to believers, but it was written to believers of Jewish heritage, of Jewish descent. Jews who accepted and claimed Christ. In writing to this Jewish audience, is the weapon of the occupying invaders the best imagery to use? Is that the imagery that the author of Hebrews would have gone to? George Grant is a retired pastor in Franklin, Tennessee, and he suggests that the better and more likely image, especially to the Hebrews, is of the Old Testament high priest. That the armor of God is not a picture of the Roman soldier with his fuller brush hat and the full Roman garb, but the image is actually much more from the Old Testament, Exodus 28 the outfit and garb of the high priest. In which case, this double-edged sword is not a sword that a soldier would hold in battle, but is the blade that the high priest would hold in making the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. It's the sacrificial blade. And actually, if you really want to dive in deep and do the, do the nerd study stuff with me, I can explain that the, there's some Greek and Hebrew that actually points to that direction too. It's the same word used for both a short battle sword and a long knife. The sacrificial knife used to make the sacrifice in the temple. And with that understanding, that maybe this is the imagery that the writer of Hebrews is getting to. Not picturing a, a physical weapon of war, but picturing the spiritual weapon of a very real physical sense. The sacrificial blade is a much more logical connection to get us from verses 12 and 13 to verses 14 through 16. That the living 
and active word is the word made flesh and dwelt among us to do his high priestly work. Once again, we see in Hebrews, Jesus is both sides of the sacrifice. He is the priest who offers the atoning sacrifice, and he is the very sacrifice itself offered for our atonement, offered for our propitiation. The word is the sword and the knife, and the word is made flesh to dwell among us, to go to the cross. The imagery of Hebrews 4 in describing the living and active word of God as a sword is again not of a battlefield cutting into an enemy, but as the blade in the hands of the high priest cutting deep into the sacrifice, cutting to the very core of us and laying us bare before God and also before ourselves if we have the eyes to see it. Indeed, we see that the word of God opens us up cuts us to the very deepest parts of us, revealing our sin. It reveals how severe our situation really is. It reveals that we indeed are sinners who have broken God's law. It reveals that we are rebels. We have rebelled against the king of the universe. We have committed high treason against the king of the universe. We have done the very thing he told us not to do, and we have not done the very things he has told us to do. And we are in bad shape because of that. We are in desperate shape, and we cannot save ourselves. And y'all, if, it, if this text, if this passage ended on verse 13, we would have no hope. If the text ended with the word of God is living and active, it is sharp, it pierces, it divides, it gets to the very core of who you are, and it will lay bare, leave you naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is no hiding before this judge. If we read 13 and said, amen, we'd walk out with, what hope do we have? other than I am fully exposed and all my wrongdoings, all my sin, all my mess is poured out before the judge, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, and I have no answer. I have nothing to say in my defense. There is no defense I can offer. But thankfully the text doesn't end at 13. We see that the living and active word of God that it's talking about here is is, it doesn't just leave us in the hopelessness. It doesn't just leave us with the problem, which we do need to get. We need to understand the problem, but it doesn't leave us there. It carries on and it gives us hope. And it gives us hope, not in an abstract concept, not hope that, you know, if you do the right things, if you go on the right quest, if you, if you accomplish enough, then maybe just maybe you might be okay at the end. But no, it gives us true and sure hope I'm sorry, sure and true hope. Not an idea, not in a concept, but in a person. In the one Jesus Christ. That's what John is talking about. That's how John opens his gospel. In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus. And then in verse 14, this is the hope. John 1.14, this is the hope. John 1.14 is, is this is what Christmas is all about. As we go into Advent next week, this is what we are celebrating throughout Advent season. 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is our hope. And this is where we get to point to the empathy of our high priest. We are once again picking up on this high priestly role of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. We began this theme back in Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. But now here in Hebrews 4, the author expands and brings out a couple of critical points. One is that Jesus, as our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. Y'all, the high priests of Leviticus 16 made an earthly sacrifice in an earthly temple, even if going to the earthly holy of holies, important, critical, good work, but it was still just earthly, even if it was in the holy of holies in the temple. It was still a physical man with a physical sacrifice in a physical place. And that by itself cannot save, cannot solve our spiritual problem. Our problem is not just a physical problem. Our problem is a spiritual one. Jesus offered his sacrifice, however, as the true great high priest, as the one high priest that all of the high priests have been pointing forward to for centuries as the one true sacrifice that all of the lambs and sheep and rams and doves and every other animal sacrificed in that temple for hundreds and hundreds of years, they all pointed forward to this true sacrifice of Jesus who did not go into the physical temple, into that physical holy of holies, but he went into the real heavenly temple, passing through the heavens into the very throne room of God now, we're going to pick up on this in Hebrews 9, so bear with us. The text is going to, Hebrews pick it up and expand on this more. But because our high priest has access to go where no other high priest can go, the real heavenly temple, the throne of God, his sacrifice is sufficient and is accepted in a way that no other sacrifice could be. And again, this is the connection from 13, verse 13 to verse 14. We have cause for hope. We have reason for joy. We have reason not to be terrified, not to be scared to death. The same word that pierces and cuts open is the same word that makes atonement for us. And is the same word that is our perfect sacrifice. This pastor named Sam Storms, he puts it this way. He says, no, no, don't be afraid. You must remember that Jesus is your high priest. He is the son of God and he has passed through the heavens and has taken his seat at the right hand of God there to intercede on your behalf. He is your advocate. He is your defense attorney. He is your eternal friend. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we have all the more reason to firmly hold to the confession of faith that we have in him. We've already encountered an urgent warning and appeal in Hebrews 3, verse 6 and verse 14 in particular, where we spoke of holding fast to our confidence, firm to the end. Now we're given the reason for it. The reason for hope. Once again, the reason, that Jesus, the reason to not give up is that Jesus, Jesus is better. He is the better sacrifice. He is the better expression of the word of God, of the truth of God. He is our high priest. And he is our high priest who has been through what we have been through. 
He has been through what we are going through. He's not a disconnected God who is too transcendent to be bothered by our concerns or by our struggles. He's not even the sort of high priest that is so high up in their religious ivory tower that they have no idea or concerns about the, the cares of, of the people in their, in their care. Our high priest can be counted on to understand the deepest struggles that we go through. The temptations that we go through, the struggles, the pain, having been tempted just like you and just like me. He can sympathize with us in our struggles, empathize with us, because he's been through the exact thing. He knows what you are facing. He knows what you have faced. He knows what you've gone through. He knows what you are going to go through. There's no experience you can have that you can say, well, Jesus doesn't know about this, because he does. Jesus, our high priest, However, is not like these high, the other high priests of the Old Testament. He's not like Aaron and, and his uh, children following him, who themselves were sinners and had to offer their own sacrifice on their own behalf first before offering the atoning sacrifice on behalf of the people. Jesus was tempted, just as we are, but without sin. Hebrews 2.18, from a few weeks ago, puts it this way. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But doesn't the fact that he didn't sin, you may be thinking, well, if Jesus didn't sin, then he really doesn't know the full scope of temptation. And there's a heresy going around that, you know, if Jesus is to fully become human, then he has to experience sin in some way, which is not true. I love how actually, let let me uh, turn to C.S. Lewis to give the answer to this. A silly idea is current that good people who do not know what temptation means, this is an obvious lie, that Jesus must have sinned in temptation. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. We can be doubly sure of our high priest that Jesus, the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, who knows us deeply, personally, intimately, more than any priest or pastor or friend possibly could, but also is the one who has gone where only he can go, passing through the heavens into the throne room of God on our behalf to make atonement for us. And very briefly, this brings us to the final point, the confidence of the believer. Because of the surety of the word of God, because of the surety of the person and the work of the word made flesh, We have confidence to come boldly to the throne room of God at all times. When I first moved to Charlotte, I had a friend who worked for for NASCAR in the the high ups. And for the all-star race one year, he got me a hot pass. I don't know if you know anything about NASCAR, about racing, but he got me this pass, and it's called a hot pass. And it allowed me, when I was wearing this pass, into the all-star race. And I could go literally anywhere I wanted to go in the track. The only place I couldn't go was over the wall, because you have to have a fire suit on to go over the wall with a pit crew. But I could go literally anywhere else. 
And I literally spent that entire race hanging out in the pit box of the number 18, hanging out with a guy named David Crowder, who was at his first NASCAR race, and I was explaining to him how all the races go. It was a really fun time. I never, I never got to do that again. That was a one-time thing. But I kept, as I'm walking in, because I've been to many races. I know you get a ticket and you sit up there in the seats. I'm walking in, coming in early, and I'm going through the tunnel into the infield. And I keep expecting somebody's going to stop me because I don't belong here. I'm not an official. I'm not with a team. I don't, I'm not important. I don't belong here. Somebody's going to stop me. Somebody's going to figure out Matt doesn't belong here. Stop him, put him back, get him back in the seats. No one ever stopped me. I walked into the infield. I walked into the driver's meeting that they were having before the race. I walked in, into, I'm literally in the, I'm in, I'm in the pit boxes. I'm in between the stack of tires and the, the cans of gas. I'm like, I don't belong here. But no one ever said anything because I had the pass. Y'all, this is the access that we have as believers. This is the confidence that we have as believers. Full, unfettered access to the throne of God. Unrestricted. Fully welcomed. I've used this quote before, but I'll use it again. Tim Keller put it this way. The only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. Is their child. Y'all, we have that access. We have that kind of access. Next week, again, we begin Advent. Advent is this celebration that Christ has come to accomplish this very thing. That according to the scriptures, to bring us back to God. That full, unfettered access to God. In just a moment, we will gather around the table to partake of the Lord's Supper together. This is the regular reminder of what God says about us and what God has done for us. This is the reminder that he brings us literally into his dining room and seats us at his dining room table and says, eat, I prepared the feast for you. You are home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would see the beauty and the power of your word, your word to change our life, your word to cut down to the very core of who we are and to bring out and expose all that we are. But Lord, also your word that assures us of the salvation we have in you. The word that points us back to the word made flesh, to the atoning work of our high priest, our sacrifice, our savior, our redeemer, our brother, our brother, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would drink deep of the word you give us. It is in your name we pray. Amen.